Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today we are joined by Sarah Topham. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. It's a real pleasure. I've been listening to some of your other episodes and I'm stealing myself because I hear how <laughs> often a guest after you read the bio says, wow, that sounds like a lot. And I can already <laughs> feel myself cringing as you read the bio and you haven't even read it yet. So. <laughs> All right, well, get ready because here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Sarah Topham is one of the most accomplished leading ladies in the classical theater today. She's a veteran of the Shakespeare Theater of DC, the Old Globe, Two River Theater, Shaw Festival, and many more. And Sarah has also appeared on Broadway in multiple Tony winning productions. She's actually on Broadway right now. So thank you so much for taking the time to out of your out of your day to meet us today. Seriously. We'll talk about that production as well. Um, and Sarah has appeared in productions in London and Asia and in 14 seasons at the Stratford Festival in Canada. Mm. Sarah currently serves on the faculty of the Classical Studio at NYU and the Shakespeare and Performance MFA program at Mary Baldwin University. Now that is a seriously redacted version of your bias. <laughs> so we, we, went, we went easy on you. Um, but it makes me want to kick it off with it with a question, if you'll indulge me. So according to your bio, it's, you have played nearly every leading lady in Shakespeare's canon. So I'll ask if you have a favorite, but looking at all of the roles that you've played, I'm curious, is there one that got away? Oh, definitely. Um two that particularly break my heart um the princess in all's well uh i'm sorry the princess in um, love's labors and helena in all's well um i i would have liked a chance to play and i think you know there are some ahead of me um still which i you know look forward to encountering when i um when i shifted my attention from stratford when i first came to broadway to do the importance of being earnest um and I thought, you know, I've been at Stratford for a long time and, um, you know, ships are safe in harbor, but it's not what they were built for. I thought as an artist, it would be important to do some things that were scare a little bit scarier, only because they were not so familiar. Stratford is big and scary, but when it becomes home, there's a safety there. And uh, I knew that meant that there would be some, I wouldn't be there when my turn came around. So, you know, you learn to let go of of those and then you get to encounter them in other ways by coaching people on them or working on a production which is a really lovely uh thing that i didn't know would happen in my life so as a teacher do you find you get the similar sense of gratification from coaching people through these roles yeah it's different i think you know as an actor you feel a part of the chain of everybody who's ever played it before you and then you're the next link to who will come after. I think you feel that particularly in company situations. You have some companies here in the United States who, you know, have a similar kind of passing of the baton thing. When I played Rosalind, for example, on the festival stage, um, the number of people who said to me, oh, I can still hear Maggie Smith doing the epilogue <laughs> um, because she had played Rosalind in a very famous production in the 1970s. And uh, that was both horrifying and comforting um, because you walk with the the shadow of everyone who has ever walked before you. You're never alone in these plays. That's a beautiful thought that it's, it's almost like the generations pass from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find is that you learn from people who you're with, um, who you're mm -hmm. watching and from the old, from the older, older actors in the group. That's what I, that's the chain I feel a part of when I'm teaching you know, I landed at Stratford at a particularly kind of special time 
the other people who were who arrived when I did, I have a few sort of friends. We all arrived together and we talk about this. There were people in the company who had been in Guthrie's company in 1953 in the first season when we arrived. Wow. And in fact, when I played Diana in All's Well, Bill Hutt, who was playing the king, had played a domain in 1953. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps, even, even though I've said it a hundred times. Every time I said it, I get goosebumps. He had played a domain in 1953 with Alec Guinness playing the king, Irene Worth playing Helena, and Guthrie directing in the tent. Uh, amazing. So when I was playing Diana, because of the repertory system at Stratford, you sometimes get onto the deck, um, the stage, um, during rehearsals, just for the odd day here and there, um, rather than in a regular production, you know, you rehearse in the hall and then you move lock, stock and barrel to the stage. You get a little back and forth during the kind of eight weeks of rep rehearsals. And the first day we were on stage, well, first of all, the beautiful voice coach, Janine Pearson, said to me, I want you to come early and meet me backstage. And um, she made me take off my shoes. And she said, I want you to walk onto the deck. And she sent me onto the deck all by myself in the empty theater in my bare feet. I had five minutes alone before she came out there. And there's something so beautiful about that. That's home for me, that stage. That's, it's how I feel about my parents' backyard, you know. Um, but later that day, um, I was on stage on a break, sort of by myself, walking through some staging in the big final scene. And I heard this voice from the dark behind me saying, Sarah, dear, turn the other way. And it was Bill Hutt. And I jumped and I looked back at him and I tried it. And he said to me, do you know why? And I said, no. And he said, because that half of the house hasn't had the chance to be on your side yet because it's a thrust stage and I've never forgotten it. And it's that kind of thing when I'm teaching that I feel a part of that chain. I think we could just wrap it up here, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could, or we could go back to the beginning. Sarah, how did this all start for you? Where, where are you from? I'm from uh, Victoria, BC. Uh, on the very west coast of Canada. So most people are kind of familiar vaguely with where Vancouver is. If you go to Vancouver and then you get on a ferry boat and go over to Vancouver Island, um, Victoria, BC is on the southernmost tip of Vancouver Island. It's the farthest west you can go um, in Canada. And um, that's where I grew up. And I started, I discovered sort of performing um, like many little girls do by being in ballet class when I was um, three years old. And uh, as soon as I kind of understood that one had to have a, something called a job and that being on stage could be a job, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a ballerina. Um, and I had a wonderful teacher. I've had an embarrassment of riches, riches in the teachers I've encountered in my life, um, which is also, I think, partly why I feel so responsible for teaching and passing it on. You know, she taught, what she really taught was storytelling. It just happened to be through the medium of classical ballet. And I loved that. And I was skilled. I had good technique, um, but I had a physical limitation 
it's very, very boring for people who don't know ballet. But for those who do, um, I, I have crummy turnout. I don't have great turnout, which is the thing that allows you to put your feet flat, you know, on a line 180 degrees. And, you know, a lot of dancers have this experience because probably less than 1% of the people who end up in a ballet class end up ever doing it professionally. My great good fortune is when I was 16 years old, um, my uh, drama teacher at high school decided to do Romeo and Juliet. And I got cast as Juliet and we did it almost uncut. I've done it twice since, and that's still the least cut version I've ever done in a high school, but he was a wonderful teacher. Um, but I remember standing on the stage during the potion speech. And just by accident, that stage was the stage on which I'd done a lot of dancing because it, that's the stage on which the ballet festivals used to be held. So I had a lot of performance hours on that stage. And I was out there doing the potion speech and I had what I call a time stop, which used to happen when I was dancing, which is I'd be in the middle of a jump and I'd be, I'd be able to stop in the air and think about something before I landed. Um, and I had a time stop in the middle of the potion speech where I, just before I drank the potion, I, I had time to think, oh, this is the same thing. It's just talking. It's the same thing. And I was off and running. That's what made the flip for me. I knew kind of from that moment that that's what I was supposed to be doing and specifically Shakespeare. I was going to say it probably helped that you were doing Juliet and Romeo and Juliet and Shakespeare. Yeah. 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 And classical, I think also the other reason I love it is because I was used to an extremely rigid structure through, and it is surrender to that structure that leads you through to freedom. If you don't surrender to the structure, you will never really have the benefit of Shakespeare under your wings. He's trying to help you all the time. And that's the same for classical ballet. It's the same, or music, anything classical. So life took you east. Yes, it did. I went to Toronto and I spent uh, a year uh, working at the Second City. I was in the company of Tony and Tina's wedding at the Second City, which was the opposite of Shakespeare. But yeah. I also learned a lot doing that. And then during the time I was there, I, I got into Stratford as an apprentice in the company. And that changed my life. You were mentioning Juliet, and I know that you brought Juliet. Um, but before yeah. before we dive into Gallop Pace, yeah. you know, you you say surrender to the structure. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you get just a little bit more specific with what that means for our listeners? Sure. For me, what that means is that the verse line, if it's in verse, is how I structure my relationship with the text. So on a very basic level, what that means is I breathe at the end of the verse line. I don't breathe in the middle of the verse line. My reasons for that are entirely practical and have nothing to do with right and wrong. Uh, my reasons for that are, well, first of all, we know Shakespeare could write prose, wonderful prose. So if he'd wanted to write in prose, he would have written in prose. Um, and for me, I, I think the distinction between verse and prose in the listener's ear is something that, that mattered to him. Um, uh, because otherwise why bother? So, um, that's one reason. And the other reason is that I found when I really, really started to do that in a deep, deep way that I, I was freer and I have never encountered a 
student or an actor I was coaching who wasn't freed by at least partially buying into that. And what I always say when I'm teaching it is it's the harder way and it will get worse before it gets better. We don't speak in punctuation. The hardest thing, great director um, once said on the first day of rehearsals for The Glass Menagerie, he said, the hardest thing about acting is that it's written down. Um, you know, we don't, as grown people, if you listen to what I've just said, uh, it has no structured formal punctuation. The other really important piece of that is that I, I believe that Shakespeare wrote in iambic, not iambic when it feels convenient and comfortable and some other foot when it feels like it's not comfortable. Structure is there to free you, right? Absolutely, um, to hold you. Much like music, you know, I did some um, some lessons with an amazing uh, opera coach whose focus is breath. I met her at a masterclass I was attending, an opera masterclass that was just with a wonderful singer named Joyce DiDonato, who any actors listening, just go onto YouTube and look up Joyce DiDonato masterclass and watch her teach because she's not teaching opera. She's teaching artistry, just happens to be opera. Anyway, I met this amazing, incredible coach and um, we were chatting and she said, oh, you should come and have a lesson. And I said, oh, I'm not a singer. And she said, well, you, you talk like a singer. I said, I'm an actor. She said, well, come anyway. You know, I've, I've never coached an actor really, but, you know, let's find out. So I did. I went and I brought some Shakespeare and we worked and it was amazing. And she said, I think um, actors are much braver than singers because the, the singers have the structure of the music outside them to hold them you know you sing into something that already exists and same with dancing right you just dance into the music the way that I find my way in Shakespeare is that I imagine that iambic underneath me like music so this is a technique that a teacher introduced you to were there actors that adhered to this technique that mm -hmm. were heroes or models for you as you were experimenting with it I mean, really, my really deep commitment to this started because I met a director named Tim Carroll, um, who for many years was Mark Rylance's partner in crime at the Globe. When I went to see those Globe productions of, I saw them in London and New York, The Twelfth Night and Richard III. Uh, wonderful to, to hear a whole production where every single human being is doing that. I found it very helpful and the real skill is, of course, that you just sound like a person. Brian Dennehy, when I was doing Twelfth Night, he was playing Toby Belch and I was playing Olivia. And uh, um, he came up to me in rehearsals and he said to me, how the hell are you doing that? And I said, what, Brian? And he said, making it sound like talking. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, and he was amazing. He he hadn't done a lot of Shakespeare and he would wander around the rehearsal hall literally with a copy of no fear Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> that is what he used in rehearsal, oh. you know, because he used to say, I, I don't know what the hell any of this, you know, he was amazing. So That's humble so in that and, and really relying on the amazing Stephen Wimette who, who was playing Andrew Aguecheek and, you know, he was incredible. So we, we used to, way back when we started, we used to ask people, are you a versist or a punctuationist, right? Um, right. Do you go for the thought or do you go for the line? Obviously, I think you go for the line. Um, well, what I would say is that that's actually, it's a false binary. 
because a breath has nothing to do with whether your thought stops or continues. A breath is not, it's why I don't like the term end stopping. I think that's a ridiculous term because simply because a breath is actually the most profound way of moving forward in time. It's not a stop, right? It's just a breath. And so there's this, the skill involved in that and, and is to keep that ball in the air when Absolutely. you're taking that breath. Yeah, it's a it's a very particular muscle because it doesn't give you any space for selfishness, for self-indulgence, for well, but what about my Hamlet? It'll be your Hamlet because you're you. <laughs> like it's not, you know, like nobody in a ballet class is saying, but what about my triple pirouette? All you're trying to do is stay up on the tip of your point shoe and get three revolutions, right? That's the, And I think for me, one of the struggles when I transitioned from dancing to acting is that dancing, you are in relationship and in dynamic with physics in a way that doesn't lie. You either stand your leg or you don't. You either manage the turn or you don't. There's no subjectivity. And there's something about the verse that uh, replaces that challenge of physics. It yields things that you won't find if you don't surrender. We've alluded to the idea that you'll be sharing something from Romeo and Juliet today. <laughs> yes. And it is the gallop of pace, you fiery-footed steeds speech from Act 3, Scene 2. Can you the set infamous. the scene for us a little bit? What's, yeah. what's, what's just happened? Well, I have to first tell you why I'm choosing this piece. Yeah. It's because when Jim and I met, we were judging the finals of the English speaking, speaking union Shakespeare uh, finals in New York, their competition. At some point in conversation, Jim said the phrase, just don't do Juliet. <laughs> and it made me smile because I thought about all of the times when I have coached, someone comes to me for grad school or whatever, and they want to do gallop of pace. Instead of wasting the time with them showing me the speech, I should just start with the notes because I already know what the notes are going to be before they start. I, so I thought maybe that would be useful and interesting. Everybody no, wants I, to do it. No, yeah. I'm curious. What are the yeah. notes? I will, right. tell, I will tell you afterwards. How about that? Mm -hmm. All perfect. right. Perfect. Well, this is Sarah Topham reading Juliet from Romeo and Juliet, Act 3, Scene 2. Gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds, towards Phoebus lodging such a wagoner as Phaeton would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy night immediately. Spread thy close curtain, love-performing night, that runaway's eyes may wink, and Romeo leap to these arms untalked of and unseen. Lovers can see to do their amorous rites by their own beauties, or if love be blind, it best agrees with night. Come, civil night, thou sober-suited matron all in black, and learned me how to lose a winning match, played for a pair of stainless maidenhoods. Hood my unmanned blood baiting in my cheeks with thy black mantle till strange love grown bold. Think true love acted, simple modesty. Come, night, come, Romeo, come, thou day in night, 
for thou wilt lie upon the wings of night, whiter than you snow upon a raven's back. Come, gentle night, come, loving black-browed night, give me my Romeo, and when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Oh, I have bought the mansion of a love, but not possessed it, and though I am sold, not yet enjoyed, so tedious is this day, as is the night before some festival, to an impatient child that hath new robes and may not wear them. Oh, here comes my nurse, and she brings news, and every tongue that speaks but Romeo's name speaks heavenly eloquence. Now, nurse, what news? What hast thou there, the cords that Romeo bid thee fetch? Thank you so much. Thank you. I have a funny story about this because I played it when I was 16. I've known it my whole adult life. And in the cut we did at Stratford, we didn't have, did ever dragon keep so fair a cave. And yet twice in performance, I said it because it was in my body from when I was 16. Now, I actually don't remember which one I said in Stratford and I don't, it's just whatever one comes out of me in the moment. I'm sure at Stratford I was consistent, but now when I, if I use it for something, I just, I don't think about it. I just, whatever one happens to be happening in my body at that moment Mm. comes out of me, but I'm pretty sure what I did at Stratford was different from what I did when I was 16. And that's why both of them live in me. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it changes for me. What it changes is what she's thinking about in terms of death. I mean, when I shall die versus when. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that's my experience uh, inside it. I don't I don't know if I can articulate the experience inside it. It's just whatever comes out of her in the moment. And if I, you know, if I was doing it in a more structured way and somebody else really cared then I would be happy to facilitate choosing. Right. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, what's the other, the other one? Oh, there was a line cut in the mask of night in our Stratford version, but it still came out of me occasionally right. because I had learned it when I was 16. And as Laurence right. Olivier said, it's not how well, you know, it, it's how long you've known it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for our, for our listeners who are following along, they won't know that we've done this speech twice, but we right. did because the first time there was a little bit of a technical difficulty. But your reading was was very different both times. Um, yeah. How well, I you... got I got nervous the first time <laughs> because the very nature of theater is that it's here and gone, and that you get to be present for it. Right. And when you record something, that's not the case. And so I got, I just had, I just got nervous, Um, which I think is a really important thing because people, I say this to students all the time, right? You're never going to get to a place as an actor where you're not afraid or you don't get nervous or anxious. This idea of imposter syndrome is just garbage. It's garbage. Giving it a name and calling it a syndrome, like there's something wrong with it. There would be something wrong with you if you were trying to do this work and you weren't nervous and you weren't afraid, if you're not nervous and afraid, you shouldn't be doing this work because you don't care enough. 
um, is my thing. So for any young people out there listening, don't ever use that phrase imposter syndrome. Hmm. It's not a syndrome. It's a perfectly normal human response to a thing that is difficult and scary. Yeah, like, I totally And it will never go away. Yeah, I, mean, I have a huge not... career, uh, you know, I, in terms of like, I don't mean I'm famous. What I mean is I've made my living as an actor and done work with people that I'm really proud of and got to play some parts I really wanted to play. And I'm still afraid. I got afraid sitting here in my home on a, in a booth on a Zoom call <laughs> with two people. Yeah. Two Shakespeare I, nerds. Right. Two Shakespeare like, nerds. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. I got nervous the first time. Uh, so in a way, I'm grateful for the te technical dis difficulty because the second time I was like, okay, Topham, just get over yourself. <laughs> just yeah. go. Yeah. That's brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks for yeah. mentioning that. I really I really feel for our guests. I mean, they're they're doing this and it's being recorded and dozens and dozens of people will hear it. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, but and that's it is the super thing. scary. It doesn't matter. The what's the anthropological thing, you know, the phenomenon of of change of watching something changes it or the the the, the fact of observing a phenomenon changes it. Mm -hmm. Any actor who's been in a rehearsal hall and suddenly the artistic director comes to watch a run through a run through it's one person, but everybody's sphincters tighten, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a, that is the skill of being the actor animal is can I, in the presence of whatever comes into the space, stay open and available to the work. Mm -hmm. And that will be your challenge till the day you don't ever want to step on a stage again, or you die in rehearsal or performance, like many great actors have, you know, mm -hmm. um, it'll never go away. Mm -mm. My, my students coming to watch me in a performance makes me anxious. Yeah. You know, because I, I want to, um, I don't want to damage their respect for my teaching by them watching me and going, well, she's not doing any of the hard stuff she's actually needed. <laughs> yeah. It also, you know, it's as a teacher, something I, I really do try to say repeatedly is I, all of these things I'm pushing you on, I'm not perfect at. I struggle all the time with this stuff. I continue to struggle. So, yeah. Well, um, just a couple observations, the I and the he, obviously, but, mm -hmm. um, uh, certainly there was an acceleration as the, as the speech went on. Um, mm. and there was an intensification. I mean, I don't know whether the two had anything to do with each other. Probably they did, mm -hmm. but as the speech went on, you got moving much faster and those breaths mm -hmm. came quicker. Yeah. Uh, and is so that her primary relationship in the play in some ways is with time. There's not a single scene in the play where she isn't in dynamic in time and either wanting it to go faster or slower or stop. Hmm. Fascinating. And that is yeah. so actively so, doing that to time. Right. And that's so yeah. age appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of that, I have a 17 year old daughter. I mean, mm -hmm. slow or fast. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. So when you're so when you're approaching the a role, um, and I'm wondering whether this is the same when you teach Shakespeare, where mm -hmm. do you start? I start now with the verse. Um, uh, there's a beautiful book called um, "The Rediscovery of Style" by Michelle Saint-Denis, who was the founder of Juilliard and also the National Theatre School in Canada. Um, which is uh, our kind of our Juilliard. And um, in that book, uh, 
he talks about the challenge of classical work in dynamic with, at the time he was writing, all of this kind of method, Stanislavskian psychological approach. And he talks about um, that the actor in a classical experience has to be a flat glove, that you mustn't impose by um, psychological or emotional sort of things onto the text until the text has come into your body and then let the text release those things rather than putting on the text. Um, and so, and again, much like dancing, right? So for me, I approach it like a dancer goes to the ballet bar and you do plies and tendus and grand batman and batman frappes. All of those things are preparing you for the work of dancing in the center or dancing on stage as we recognize it. Um, for me, that verse work is really my bar work to prepare me for the freedom. Um, I sometimes, as an example of why I believe in the verse, do a little bit of uh, usually a chunk of Juliet because um, she's so deep in my bones um, uh, both ways. So I will do um, the punctuation version, which is um, gallop pace, you fiery footed steeds. Uh, wait, hold on. It's I, you have to think so hard to do it. Yep. Galpa pace you fiery-footed steeds towards Phoebus, towards Phoebus lodging. Such a wagoner as Phaeton would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy night immediately. Spread thy close curtain. Like, I, I almost can't do it. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Um, and uh, that's because it's so, that verse thing is so deep in my bones. Yeah, so, so that's where I start. So you start with the verse. Um, and yeah. And that leads me to all these incredible questions because... Sometimes it, you, it doesn't feel like you want a breath at the end of the line, right? In the sense of the line. And sometimes it feels like you want a breath in the middle of the line. Right. So then my, that leads me to these great questions. Why does the person need to breathe at the end of the line? What, what is it the breath is doing for them? And in the middle of the line, why can't they breathe? That's a great question. I like that second question. Right? Why so, so, and that can be, um, why can't they afford to breathe? Right? Which is sometimes if you breathe, someone else is going to interrupt you, which is what we do all the time in life, right? When we don't want to be interrupted because we haven't really finished what it is we're going to say, then we do this because we don't want, right? We do it all the time yeah. in real life. And that's the people talking thing, right? Right. Yeah. So that's where I start because I feel like that work cracks open those questions. That's fantastic. Um, and mm -hmm. certainly with Juliet and your performance of Juliet, there, the breath, which we could hear, um, mm. maybe because of the mics or, yes, but we could hear your breath. Um, added, uh, I mean, it's strange, but it added a breathless quality to the speech. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is, it's a strange because I believe so profoundly that nobody in Shakespeare ever talks to themselves. Shakespeare's characters are always in dynamic with that house. And that what's wonderful about the house is the house becomes whoever the character needs them to be, or the thing the character is afraid of. You think about Richard III, they go from being his compatriots to his army, to his jurors, you know, like all of that. And that, that relationship just changes on a dime. You know, um, 
uh, who are they in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, they can be separate things. One person's the, 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 the matron all in black. One person becomes this, this piece of the night. So in a, in a situation here, I'm in a place by myself. I'm trying to put myself in the space of remembering, you know, what if in bringing that, those people into my imagination, which is of course a thing you don't have to do when you're actually on a stage because right. they're just there. Right. Um, they're your partner. There's two things that are the big trap of the speech. Are, are we talking which, about the notes? We're talking, the these are sort did? of the notes. Yeah. These are sort of the notes. Um, one of them is the sort of popular notion um, that that the word gallop indicates a trochee. Um, and so what you get is legions of Juliet coming onto the stage and saying, gallop apace, you fiery footed steeds, which you can, I can't, that's a podcast, but you know, if I do the physical trajectory of that, what happens is this, the springboard becomes up into the air and down. So you go, you end up going gallop apace, you fiery footed steeds and dropping the play on the floor. And 99.9% .9 of the time, Juliet will be beginning the second half of the play after an intermission where people have had a glass of wine and they're finishing up their gummy bears or whatever it is they've bought in the crinkly packages at the thing. And you send an actress out on stage and she goes, gallop a pace, you fiery footed steeds. And her breath is lifted and she's, and you're, you're kind of dead on the vine because there's no way to go from there. Mm. I'm not ever advocating for gallop a pace, you fiery footed steeds. But what I am advocating for is not dropping the text and making it inert on your very first syllable. I'm advocating for the forward motion like the horses. And what I always hear in my ear, you know, the famous scene in My Fair Lady that come on Dover, move your bloomin' arse mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Think about how people, or if you watch the Derby, right? Think about how people watch a horse race. It's like they're a horse. It's like they're in the pack. Come on, come on, come on. Yeah, come on, come on. Right? You. That's how people talk to the horse that's in motion. Mm. That to me is much more useful to Juliet, that she joins the horses rather than attacking them from outside. Mm. She joins them, right? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. That's mm -hmm. what that line is. Mm -hmm. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Gallop a pace, you fiery footed steeds, right? You can feel it. And I think if you start there, then you have a place to go. My other, the other big trap of this speech is, um, forgive me for the gross generalization, but I think the kind of power of the middle-aged white male director over time telling young actresses that this speech is like an orgasm or is about sexual gratification because she says the word come and because of the feeling of a speech. That's an external male gaze on the speech and has nothing to do with the physical experience of a young girl who doesn't know what she's on the cusp of. Right. So then what happens is, and the reason that's important is because 
acting requires an action, which is a notion we often pay lip service to. But then we say, oh, but this speech is about this, about her experience. Mm -hmm. But then you're screwed as an actor because you're not trying to change something outside of yourself. Her partner in this scene is by turns, the steeds, the moon, the night, right? And the night, she has 1,500 different tactics to get the night on her side. The minute you start making it about she's having a sexual experience in this speech, she is no longer engaged in the act of trying to change the world around her with her words. Mm-hmm. And you're dead on the vine. Mm-hmm. You're dead on the vine. And the number of young actors who come to me and said that that's the note they've been given. Or it's just in the water. We've received it somehow. But think about what she does, right? She talks to the seeds. Then it's spread thy close curtain, love performing night. That runaway's eyes, the star's eyes may wink. And Romeo leap to these arms untalked of and unseen, right? And then it's new thought. Lovers don't need light. They can see to do their amorous rites by their own beauties, or if love be blind, and there's one of those midline things, right? So you could end up with, um, lovers can see to do their amorous rites by their own beauties, breathe. Or if love be blind, it best agrees with night. But that's a person who knows what they're going to say. That's not how we talk when we're in the act of discovery. How we talk in the act of discovery is, holy shit, I just thought of a great argument for night. We don't need the stars, right? Right. So so close out the stars so he can get to my arms untalked of and unseen. And actually, even then, we don't need the stars because lovers can see to do their amorous rites by their own beauties. Or if love be blind... It best agrees with night. Come, civil night. Like, get on my team, right? And then, Mm. right? And then it's, oh my God, you're a teacher. Thou so, I honor you, I venerate you, thou sober suited matron all in black. And learn me what? How to lose a winning match played for a pair of stainless maidenhoods. Oh, that's the first time that the blood comes in her cheeks and she doesn't know why, right? Yeah. She doesn't, right? Hood my own blood baiting in my cheeks with thy black mantle till strange love, unknown love, I don't know is what she's saying. Grown bold, think true love acted simple modesty. I want it to feel simple and beautiful and right, you know? It, it it's that it's that right i and it's funny because that's the line that that confounds me uh when mm-hmm. i'm asked about it think true love acted simple modesty mm-hmm. and yeah till strange love grown bold um think meaning um it's opinion of true love simple mo- it's simple modesty that's all it will think it's not going to think that it's um, bad or, you know what I mean? It's not going to think it's anything other than simple, correct. Right. So this, I mean, this has been really fascinating. And your thoughts on Juliet are, are changing me. Um, my question is, 
why. And now that you're doing Leopoldstadt on Broadway, which mm-hmm. is a modern play, although mm-hmm. Stoppard deals in language, mm-hmm. uh, how does working on Shakespeare inform working on Stoppard? Or, uh, is it Stoppard? How Stoppard. does Stoppard? I, Stoppard. I say Stoppard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I wish I could do his accent for you. I, I can't. I've, uh-huh. I've really listened in all the time I've spent with him because I spent quite a bit of time with him now and I just can't do it. I, I can't <laughs> make it work. Um, but yeah, I think some people say stoppard, but I say stoppard because I yeah. think North Americans do. And That's what we do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, wait, hold on. Say the first thing again. So how, how does oh, working on Shakespeare inform- for, Tom, for Tom? Yeah. Tom right. Or, and then the other modern was, text. Why do people want to do it? Yeah. Um, I think the answer to why do people want to do it is two reasons. I think there's a good reason and a, and a, and a less useful reason. I, that's, I'll say a useful reason and a less useful reason. Um, the less useful reason is people feel it legitimizes them. We still have this idea that Shakespeare is legitimate in a way other things aren't maybe. Um, I have seen a lot of directors uh, want to direct a Shakespeare play because they felt it would legit, even though in some level they hate Shakespeare and everything it stands for, they still believe it will legitimize them. And those productions are always uh, complicated because it's very difficult to serve Shakespeare if you're trying to conquer him. You know, the, the stage I was talking about before at the festival, the Tanya Mazievich, the famous thrust stage on which the old Guthrie was based, on which Chichester is based in, in England. Um, I once said to an actress at the festival, why is it so great, that stage? Why is it so great? And she said to me, because that stage is like Shakespeare. It will either set you free or show you your limitations. <laughs> and that stage, if you try to conquer it, will show you your limitations. If you honor it and and ask it to serve you as you serve it and serve the play, it will support you. And Shakespeare's the same. So I think that's a not good reason. Um, I think the good, the 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 useful reason for wanting to do Shakespeare and the reason I think people are drawn to it is because I I'm not sure that any playwright ever has articulated so clearly the experience of being human there are great playwrights you know Chekhov is a great playwright but his whole power is in the unarticulated right um and I think we long to be better at articulating as humans because we believe if we can just articulate it we will be understood um there's a beautiful passage in um a novel called the the night train to Lisbon that I often share with my students I'm going to paraphrase it um but it goes something like of the of the you know thousands of experiences we have we have in life we find language for only one or two of them at most and buried underneath all the other things of our life are are these mute experiences we are not able to give words to and I often say to actors on working on Shakespeare we have the opposite challenge because we're given the words and our job is to shape the experiences underneath them. I think that's part of why we're drawn to him because we're all basically as a species hopeless at articulating the difficult things and he does. Sarah Topham, thank you so much for spending time with us today. 
My pleasure. Nothing makes me happier than a nerd and a Shakespeare nerd <laughs> is like the top of the, you know, the heap for me. So thank you for the pleasure of your company and, and being in Shakespeare's words. I'm a Shakespeare nerd and my name is Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you nerds for listening to the state of Shakespeare. <laughs> and that's the, that's the, that's the podcast. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I'm so glad that we met. I'm so glad we met too. What a pleasure. And I've,